you're not gonna stop the advancements in tech. This is not gonna happen. So attempts to do that have failed throughout history, actually, to slow things down. So if that's gonna be true, and the technology is gonna get better and better and better, then we need to, to work together to think about ethics and privacy. Welcome to the future of a podcast by Fresh Consulting, where we discuss and learn about the future of different industries, markets, and technology verticals. Together, we'll chat with leaders and experts in the field and discuss how we can shape the future human experience. I'm your host, Jeff Dance. Steve, grateful to have you here with us as a leader in automated sort of in autonomous systems with a deep history in hardware and software and algorithms. One of the things you had mentioned was how you build those systems with intent, you know, and I think your experience building in the classroom, you know, building algorithms and software for the classroom and thinking about students and the interaction there, I think is really applicable to this notion of building autonomous systems with intent. One of the things I heard you say was, you know, how do you keep the humans part of the loop when they need to be? And I'm interested in more your thoughts around that. Like, when does it make sense to make something truly autonomous? And at what point do you kind of build in, you know, this sort of human connection and keep humans in the loop? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Actually, thinking about human in the use cases, first of all, they can be the object to be interacted. And second of all, they can be some type of operator or controller, administrator in the system. So these are two different roles. And for the first type, it's going to be, we are treating that engineeringly, we are treating that as a typical object in the environment. We are collecting its status and monitoring its behaviors and trying to understand what it does, what he or she does, not it. But uh, it's a typical engineering solution for that case. But for the human interference as a operator or administrator role, that definitely requires a lot more work. You have to present the data to that operator. The operator needs to use the human wisdom and the business logic to make a decision, then participate into the control part of the whole process. You guys had mentioned a lot of topics so far, but as we think about technology itself, like Jordan, I'm interested in some of your thoughts because you know, SoftBank is bringing a lot of robots to kind of support. And does that compete with the human experience? How do humans and robots work together? You know, these things are going to happen no matter what. And without knowing more or thinking about more, we can't kind of design with intent. So interested in some of your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, and I think, you know, with physical robots and even with, you know, robotic automation when it comes to software, you know, I think the goal is always to augment and empower. Right. And it's, I think that's a really important goal for us to have in mind as we think about, you know, going back to my days of when I was, you know, before I became an officer in the army, just, you know, looking at our vacuuming robots or whether it was vacuuming, sweeping, or polishing floors in the barracks. And it was, you know, terrible jobs to do, right? To, to also cleaning the latrines. Like, no, you know, there was like the detail, we call it details. Like, that's the detail nobody really wanted to do, but you had to get it done. And so you would volunteer for it. There is just so much opportunity where 
you know, when we look at what people actually do and, and reflecting on the purpose and dignity of work that I think is quite interesting. And we're seeing a lot of that trends happen. And I think at the same time, you meet that, you match that with, you know, the great resignation data that you're seeing. I think there's a really interesting shift to think about how can we rethink the, the traditional uh, tasks that are being done and also give people the opportunity and space to say, look, you know, maybe I can put resources towards upskilling and enable you to, you know, go from cleaning toilets to being a robot operator and have these additional toolkits available. And so I think there's a host of services that haven't even begun to, I think, fully emerge when we think about the robo economy that needs to happen. I'm really excited for what happens in the next, you know, I would say even 10 years. My name is Morten Jorgensen. I am the CEO of Friday PM, and I've spent my whole career working with customers about workplace transformation and workplace strategy. And I'm massively passionate about how do we figure out the best way to work in the future. For some, that is connecting square meters to corporate strategy. But for others, it's also looking at it in a whole new perspective, which we do at Friday PM. So if we're looking at design and technology, that is actually the space that I operate in in my daily life. I think there's two sides to this. One is... We need to understand on a neurological level, almost down to an emotional level, how design impacts us when we work. We need to understand how colors affect our emotions, how smells affect our emotion. We need to understand what mode of light do I need to be in for different work types. As I talked about before, I need to have the right space for the right work mode. And that work mode needs to be designed to that specific situation I am in. I think we forget the importance of emotional states. I've said this to others in the past. I think most of us know how important emotions are during the day. We get happy, we get sad, we get frustrated. We go all over the spectrum during the day. But I think a big piece here is understanding what is emotion. And emotion in its word is emotion. It is energy in motion. And we can control that energy by understanding how design impacts us when we are in a physical state. Now that we've learned and we're seeing the, the yeah. pros and the cons of connecting and the importance of disconnecting and better understand our own brain and our emotions. And I think that's the opportunity to design for the future. And I, and I think as we think about robots, it's I believe it'll be these are just machines that have a, more intelligence you know, some more intelligence, they can be smarter, but machines aren't new to humans. And it's just that the AI and intelligence, actually things truly being smart versus just doing logical things and repetitive things automatically, that this is a new wave. And I think it begets the importance of, of design, the very things we're talking about and the very things are hopefully are, are, our world leaders are talking about in, the, in these uh, world economic forums. Um, certainly the fourth industrial revolution covers a lot of these topics. Caroline, if we can start with you, if you can tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and your experience in the space of space. Yeah, absolutely. So I am really a space nerd at heart. I didn't uh, come out of the space nerd closet as I term it until I did my first internship at NASA where I realized that I could have a future in space. I could contribute to this that growing up, I didn't realize was something that I could 
work in and spend my time and my career. Let's talk about the ethics, the ESG side of space. Like, how do we build, how do we be thoughtful here? Obviously, Caroline, your whole company is sort of centered around this, like the ethics and equity of space. What thoughts do you have around this area? Yeah, it's, it's a big area that I think we as an industry need to look at ourselves and address before we, or as we move forward, really. There's a lot that we can do on the ESG side in terms of contributing to terrestrial companies understanding ESG. There's a lot of monitoring that can happen from space to, to verify that those metrics are being met. But many people in the space industry stop there um, rather than looking at ourselves and how we can also implement some of those, those same things. There are a number of challenges. I think part of it is by listening. You know, we have a an industry where we have a lot of wonderful leaders who have a lot of great experience in the industry, but I think we also need to spend more time listening to university students about what they're interested in, what challenges they face, listening to early career people and their perspectives on the future. Um, so really, you know, balancing out where we're trying to to understand what that vision could be and what priorities are, what changes we need, what struggles we're seeing. You know, there has been this loss of talent, right? We have a dripping pipeline as you go from high school to university through early career, where we lose a lot of the diverse perspectives that can offer value. Um, and so I think addressing that is helpful. One of the other things I think we really need to do is engage people beyond the space industry. We have been insular almost intentionally as an industry for so long. You know, we have these phrases, space is hard, or, you know, rocket scientists are like the epitome of intelligence. I mean, we really offset ourselves to something special in the world where really we need to integrate with the entire, you know, terrestrial economy and in society and, and bring in different, different people, different viewpoints. Do we need brilliant engineers? Yes, absolutely. But we also need brilliant communicators. We need storytellers. We need people who are really good at finance and business to figure out ways to make the, the economy more, more effective, more profitable, broaden it out. So we really need to bring people from other industries in and I think open up ourselves a little bit more to make that more equitable. And then there's another whole layer to that, which is how do we engage the global community, right? Space is this really unique place where we as a as a world all share one environment that we want to operate in and benefit from. It's not like airspace where you can really define above a country, okay, this is American airspace or this is, you know, the distance from the shore for sea space. Space is fully shared once we're up there. And so how do we make sure that we have equitable access to that? And it's not just the countries that were there first, right? It's not just the US or the former USSR that that were there first and really established dominance and and have thousands of satellites in orbit. How do we enable those countries that are newer to space, right, that are launching their first satellite, that they can still have access to that? How do we do that? There's a lot of conversation that needs to happen. It's not an easy problem, but it's one that that really for, I think for us to hit this trillion dollar economy in a way that's not a uh, one of those terrifying futures that we see in sci-fi movies, uh, <laughs> yeah. we really need to address that that global problem as well. That makes sense. Seems like things could get, you know, could go one way or another easily. And so really designing with intent, having those conversations, br building bridges, having, making sure we have good representation is really important to that future together. It's key. Yeah, we can get dystopian real quick. And I don't want to see us go down that path, but I, I already see some tendencies toward that if we don't uh, nip them in the bud. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you both with me on this episode focused on the future of voice AI. Excited to have two serious voice leaders and evangelists that think about work on the future. Let's start with some introductions. Ken, if I can start with you, would you care to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? 
Indeed. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back in the saddle alongside Roger as well. It's been a little while. So yeah, my name is Kane Sims. I'm a founder of a consultancy called VUX World. We help organizations plan and execute customer experience strategies with a focus on artificial intelligence and namely conversational AI and voice AI, which is what we're going to talk about today. Well, first, uh, Kane, nice to see you again. I'm with a legend in voice in the room. So, uh, <laughs> Kane Sims. So, I've been working with voice and conversational AI since 2018. I work for Samsung and as a developer evangelist. So, what I do is talk to companies, designers, developers, and talk about conversational AI and how we can use conversational AI to drive really their business goals forward or you know, if it's not a business, they're creating a game or having something fun or something useful and really exploring how voice can be where it is the best user interface and oftentimes where it is not a good user interface and kind of building the the appropriate tooling and capabilities for the job. Around ethics, there's obviously been a lot of debate on the ethics of sort of AI and voice assistants that, you know, listen to all. Any thoughts on that? Um, that's the kind of the first question. Then the next question I'm going to ask is like, how do we continue to design for the future, knowing that you know we can play a role? People, thought leaders like yourselves can really play a role in helping us design the future. So you're not going to stop the advancements in tech. This is not going to happen. So attempts to do that have failed throughout history, actually, to slow things down. So if that's going to be true, and the technology is going to get better and better and better, then we need to to work together to think about ethics and privacy and what does that mean? You know, part of the the privacy, and I could go off on a whole tangent with privacy, is everybody likes to talk about privacy and it's a hot topic. And yet for the general consumer, they, you know, they click through the EULA, they click through, they don't pay attention, you know, the little thing that pops up in the web about the cookies, who pays attention to that? I don't, right? And I know what they're, they're asking me. There. And so how do you protect privacy in a way that people can understand? Because I think the way that we handle privacy right now is these complicated legal agreements and pop-ups and things that don't make sense. So how is it that I can give Kane's company, right? I'm interfacing with him via his company via voice. I'm just making this up, right? I give you permission to store this information about me and that and do these things for me, but not for my permission to go here. I don't think we found a UX or a way to do this that isn't kind of techie and geeky and and unusable there. So I think there's an opportunity, maybe voices involved there, uh, AI, to allow the permissions, I for allow me to set permissions in a usable human way that is certainly very, very different than what, what happens today. I don't even think that even in the conversational AI or voice AI space that the whole concept of ethics is really being grasped properly yet. I mean, everyone's rushing onto the hype and building chatbots and voice assistants and launching stuff and that, but they don't really think about what's, what the reality of, is of what they're doing. Is What they're doing is they're capturing data from customers, speech data, textual data, that data has been processed in the whoever cloud 
whatever cloud it is you're using, Amazon, Google, whatever, that text is being stored, you know, and monitored and and kept for however, no, who knows how long. Nobody hardly, the built voice assistants today has any GDPR policies in place. I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK, you can only store certain data if you absolutely have to. You have to have a reason for it and a policy for it. You can only store it for so long. It has to be deleted automatically after two years, even if you are storing it for a certain reason. There's a whole range of things that you need to do when it comes to gathering data from from people and i don't think anyone's really considering it one of the things that we do regularly is to consider that ethical side of things because also depending on the use case that you're using certainly from a business if you've got a a voice assistant that's there to process passports for somebody that assistant now has autonomy and it has authority it can say no you can't have a passport and all of a sudden, when there's this bot, this kind of virtual entity, you've got no recourse, you can't argue with it, you can't kind of do anything other than just accept what the machine tells you. And so we're in a, we're going to hit a real ethical kind of minefield when these assistants start doing things that are, you know, things like that, that are more important, that have an impact on people's lives, trying to get a parking permit, the boss says no, what do you do about that? You know, and, and if you're trying to cancel insurance, the boss says no, you're paying for your insurance constantly. And there's a whole range of things where, you know, we have to question whether it's ethical to allow an AI assistant to do some of these things, because what's the impact of that on on people, you know? Amen, is all I have to say to that last comment there. <laughs> Jacob, we're honored to have you on the show. I've been reading your articles and books and thought leadership for, it seems like, 20 years now. So your present mind in our voice as we think about uh, the UX profession and the thought leadership around the space and the thinking and the guidance. How do you see the kind of UX field evolving with all this new innovation that's going to be coming in the next 20 years? So yes, more designers, but do we think that the practices, the methods uh, need to change or the field needs to change at all with, with all this new tech? I mean, I think you're right that there will be, we will divorce ourselves more from the screen. I mean, the, the graphical user interface was honestly one of the really big advances in usability. It's, it's so much easier to deal with things we can see them rather than have to remember them. This is actually one of our human factors principles is that human memory is really <laughs> weak. And so if you can show things to people so they don't have to remember them, this is vastly an improvement in usability. But that said, we can't always sit in front of a big computer screen, right? And so uh, there's a lot of things that are becoming more interactive, becoming more computerized. So the user interface will more be around us. It'll more be the world that's a user interface as opposed to just your computer screen. And I, I still honestly believe in the same fundamental methods of watching users behave and act in that world. But yeah, the actual design principles will certainly have to be very different because we cannot use these principles saying, well, no, make a search box in the upper right part of the screen. A lot of those guidelines we have that are great guidelines, but apply to a certain certain representation of the interaction. Any other thoughts, you know, from a macro perspective about how, you know, we can be more intentional for the future, given all we've learned from the past? Jacob, thoughts from you? Well, I mean, mainly I'm a very optimistic, positive person. But the one one of the things that has sort of been disappointing to me, I guess, is a lot of sort of social media for the last 10 years or something. So that could be one area one would hope one could have learned from from the past. And I'm sure, the, I mean, there's a lot of great, uh, both actual benefits and also perceived or hoped for benefits, but they've also been overshadowed by various downsides as well. And so 
that would be one area I think that there would be potential for learning from learning from the past and doing better next time. Yeah. In this episode of The Future Of, we're joined by Katrina Stevens. Welcome, Katrina. It's a pleasure to have you on this episode focused on the future of education. Such a fascinating topic given how much has changed in the last decade with all this digital transformation. Um, how much has changed in the last two years? So thinking about what the future holds is really exciting. Excited to have you not only as an experienced educator, but a leader and a thought leader. One of the things you mentioned was uh, you know, impact on the brain and you know, this we have you know, TikTok now has more than a billion users and we have like even more, it seems like lack of attention or ability to kind of keep attention, yeah. with, especially with the younger generation that are being given phones at a, at a young age. Any thoughts on that impact and how we, how we cater to this new generation of learners or help them learn differently more and more interpersonal skills? Yeah. And I, a few things about that because it's not going away. Yeah, you know, so so <laughs> like social media is is here to stay, and I worry about the you know the impact it has on young girls, for example, young women, or um, folks who are non-binary. Like, how does what they see impact their how they think about themselves? That I think takes means that we've got to be essentially creating digital citizens. Like, we need to be teaching and preparing young people to understand what they're seeing, how they're posting, how that interacts, and how that impacts how how they think about themselves. So they themselves have the tools to be able to interpret those things. We actually blew up on TikTok. So the tech has, has uh, <laughs> they, um, we, nice. we had over a quarter of a million views on a TikTok that was on data science. Okay. So like data science, like opportunity insights. We were highlighting how you can look and, and use data to understand um, uh, poverty. And well over 200 comments from, from teens who were talking about it. So you can use technology and, and, or these, you know, these mediums to be able to, not everybody who's on TikTok is using it for, you know, to see the latest dance number. <laughs> yeah. So they, for us, it's sort of like, well, if the kids are there, that's where I'm going to go. And what we see is that they'll engage with that and then they'll engage and then they continue to kind of go into the next pieces of it. I do worry about the kind of attention span issue and this, this, we need to intentionally put time into schools where, um, or you think about it as like a, a tech break. A friend of mine wrote a book called, which um, uh, is right here, Digital for Good, um, Richard Collada. And at the end of each chapter, it actually has these kind of recommendations for parents. And one of them is that you just take tech breaks. It's not a, like tech is bad or, or tech is forbidden, but hey, you know, like what should we do instead? Let's go for a walk. <laughs> so instead of being like, oh, these things are bad and you shouldn't be on them, but it's more like it's the way you think about your diet or, you know, it's, you want a mix of things. You want a mix <laughs> you know, of so things. How much time and, and what kinds of technology are you using uh, and being thoughtful and helping our kids actually be able to learn how to navigate that too. I think that's super, super important because we see even more technology coming and it's coming fast and, and we don't have time sometimes to figure out the impacts. So this principle of connecting intentionally and also connecting in, or disconnecting intentionally, I think is super important. Fresh actually developed a site called balancetech.org, which actually just focuses on resources around this topic of oh. connecting with tech, yeah. which is part of what we do working in AR, VR. That's one of our biggest spaces, mm -hmm. robotics, AI, et cetera. But we also realize like, hey, the disconnection is really important. How do we help our team think about disconnection? And, and so we kind of put that into a, a resource for others and hope to keep adding more there. But definitely a passionate topic for us. Any, like, I think this side of technology is often not talked about. And I think I think in the last five years, we're talking about a lot more is, you know, how technology can get in the way or, hey, the ethics of technology. And it's not that we hadn't been talking about it, but we're talking about it a lot more because we're realizing the impact of, 
how this, you know, this has changed our lives you yes. know, dramatically. In this episode of The Future Of, we're joined by Rene Schulte and Botan Bognard to explore the future of spatial computing. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with me on this episode focused on this most fascinating topic. What about some of the dilemmas, the ethical dilemmas? You guys mentioned security, sort of privacy. What are some of those things and kind of designing everything with intent now while it's in sort of the formation stage? What are some of those dilemmas that we need to be mindful of and, you know, put a lot of energy into? Yeah, so privacy first. This is, needs to be one of the, the first things when designing solutions. Like we need to think about it, especially when we're thinking about spatial computing. And basically it's driven by computer vision which means analyzing camera frames. And so you want to make sure that when you do this, like when you use your phone or whatever device you have to scan an environment around you, that this data is, first of all, securely stored, if at all the storing of that data is needed, and uh, that no one can do malicious things with this. And I like if I look at certain large tech players where the main business model is, is advertisements and, you know, where the revenue comes from, I don't know if I would trust them. And so trust will become a really, really important thing, even more than it is today, where it's already very important. But one example to give is Microsoft Azure Spatial Anchors technology is one implementation where you can put virtual anchors in the real world. And I know the team pretty well, the research team, they're based out of Zurich. And they put a huge emphasis, and if you look at some of the papers from computer vision conferences on privacy, so what they do is when you scan the environment around you, they process the camera frames locally on the device, and they don't send the camera frames into the cloud and store it there. They only extract the relevant features, so-called feature points. And they're not even just storing the feature points as they are, they're storing them in a kind of an obfuscated way, so that it's very but pretty much impossible to reverse engineer from the data that is stored in order to later on localize to get to the real world situation. And so this is, this, these things need to be key because otherwise this will just fail because like we need to make sure this is a secure and a space where privacy is also maintained. And I'm not even getting into the whole aspect of avatars, right? Like this is a, of course, a different part. I'm just talking about the real spatial computing aspect of this, but yeah, this is huge. Like this is a very important po topic that we also probably need certain policies and constraints that will ensure that, you know, folks don't get havoc with this. Do you know of any groups that are working on those policies right now? Yes. So, for example, you have the uh, Metaverse Foundation Europe is, is one that was just founded. They are uh, looking into how to make, you know, sure that these Metaverse solutions will have, a, a, you know, will maintain certain values that are yeah, common to Europe, for example like privacy, security, and whatnot. And uh, of course, there's other standard forums that are evolving, like the Metaverse Standards Forum, um, mainly driven by the Kronos Group and a couple of others. And uh, yes, so there's uh, fortunately a lot of folks are thinking about it. In this episode of The Future Of, we're joined by Amanda Marge to explore the future of recycling. Amanda, we're so excited to have you and touch on this important subject about our future together. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here technology often changes so fast, things are changing so fast that if we can design things with a little bit more intent, then, you know, the future can change and we might catch, you know, some behaviors that 
that would be better off had we uh, put more thought into it versus just, you know, gone with how the change has gone. And especially with technology in the last 20 years, it kind of has, you know, life of its own. It's really changed us as humans and humans hasn't adapted as fast as technology. But sure. so think about this space. Are you aware of, you know, guidelines for designing products with more intent for recycling? Or is, there, is that something that exists? Like a company like us that actually actually designs mostly, you know, hardware products. We also do, we build robots, but we actually do get involved sometimes in, in the packaging of, of the products that we design and build as well. Yeah. Are there guidelines for this? Yeah, there are some. The kind of the TLDR, so the summary of it is as much as you can make things separable into their different commodity items um, and make sure it is a commodity that can be reused. So the things like cardboard, you know, aluminum, those are things that are easily reused and have value in the market. This space is, is such a cool space to be in because of the benefit. What other technologies, you know, might play a role in the, in the future of recycling? So is it, is it more and more robots? Tell us more about, you know, technologies that you think could be influential. For sure. Yeah. So that sort piece, you need a touch to sort something, you know, similar for, you know, a logistics network, you're touching a package to move it. And so it kind of, if you put on a lean manufacturing perspective, you want your single touch and you want it to be, you know, the most efficient way to move something from A to B. So when we think about how do we help enable those sorts through our technology, we look at what locations in that sort facility need that touch. And that's the best place for the touch. What's the right way to efficiently recover that material. So if we're going after a material, we're getting it. We're making sure, you know, we're not wasting picks. And then how do we make sure that we're expanding our sortation portfolio to go after as many different material types as possible? To summarize, you know, if we think about the next 10 years, it's more about kind of infrastructure, kind of data, lots of data, 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 and, and more machines that can help with the sorting aspect, the designing aspect where things can be more recognizable, where companies are actually helping you with that. And then from there, maybe 20 years from now, it's like we truly have a more domestic sort of circular economy where we get the, these higher thresholds of usability when we're, when we're doing all the wishful recycling, essentially. Maybe our, our wishfulness gets better, essentially. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, 10 years is, you know, data is driving, you know, immediate change on what we can produce and what we can sort. 20 years is, you know, the, that packaging. So there's kind of the three parts of the value chain the packaging, the sortation, the offtake. Packaging is changing. You know, sortation is is now a solved problem, which is, you know, so wonderful. And it really couldn't have been solved in this way before we had the technology to recognize you got to see items to sort it, right? And now the offtake piece is, is a huge part of a lot of academic research going into how do you make better use of these kind of undesirable materials that don't inherently have good value, aren't highly recyclable. What do we do with them? I want to thank you for your devotion to this space. We, I clearly kind of hear and feel the, the passion that you have. And I think it's so exciting to think about where we are today, the opportunity to kind of start moving the needle and to go faster. It's been great to get your insights and uh, think about uh, how you can continue to impact our future. Thank you. In this episode of The Future of IoT, we're joined by Donna Moore, CEO and chairwoman of Laura Alliance, and Reg Orton, product development lead at Fresh Consulting, to explore the future of IoT. Welcome, it's a pleasure to have you on this episode focused on the future of IoT. And given how big IoT has become, you know, I think what billions and billions, 12 billion devices now or more, you know, connected to the internet. It's exciting to have two leaders who've been involved in 
both projects, products, and standards that, you know, cover the world. Any thoughts on what we need to do to kind of maintain the human experience and make sure we're designing for, you know, what's good for us? I know, I know we're hearing the benefits, but it seems like history would tell us there's also some byproduct where, you know, we're not changing as fast. And so it, it caught up in like, you know, hey, we're on phones all day and, you know, not spending time, not connecting with, with each, other, each other in a more meaningful way as one example. And there's always pros and cons, you know, to technology, but any thoughts on how we can be more intentional for the future? I think this is an area that's very key. And if we look at, you know, other technologies, sort of AI, for example, I mean, there are many, many examples of bias AI that's implemented negative things into our society. You know, there's lots of people that are, you know, facial tracking and facial recognition can be used for things that aren't so great. And the same thing with collecting massive amounts of sensor data from everywhere, it can come with come with risks. But I think that, you know, if we like do weigh up the pros and cons, and I think we do need to go into this with open eyes, we can do some really, really amazing work and start to think about how can we ensure people's personal privacy, but still providing a benefit to society that is that is useful. There's a fine line in that. I think it comes with it comes with learning and and some honest realization of what what is it that we're trying to achieve here, and do we always need to put sensors in everything? Probably not. But is the utility in doing that? Probably in many cases, yes. Thank you, Donna. Any thoughts from you? Just that again, I'll speak specifically to Laura Wan. I mean, the goal of Laura Wan is to not be intrusive, right? To take the information and take action on your own once you've set parameters. So, you know, I've had a lot of people say, "Well, what's the downside?" and Sorry, there, there really isn't. It's about allowing people to have more time to do what they do well and, you know, automate the efficiency of the operations in a way that just keeps m- moving, right? And so that's the goal. My last question is around disconnecting. You know, we're connecting more and more as, as human beings. How do we also be intentional about, about disconnecting? And can the technology that we're creating and connecting, can that also help us? I don't disconnect well, so I'm probably not a good person to ask of that. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not one that's so deep into technology that feels like it rules me, but I am so appreciative of the technology that I use and the efficiencies and the connections that it gives me. So I don't feel overwhelmed by it all. But again, I'm not, I don't have a zillion gadgets in my house and, you know, everything connected. But the stuff I have, like I said, is I can't imagine because it really makes me more efficient. I think for me, it's it's about how do we continue to enable human connection. And I think anything that reduces our pure screen time can be seen as a good thing. And I think IoT and edged and physical devices rather than purely digital devices or physical devices and enhanced by digital can start to enable that. We don't need to kind of go to our, our phone or our smartwatch to do things now that can happen in the background without our intervention is, is great. When we don't need to spend as much time, you know, fiddling and thinking about technology as we can just living our lives and technology kind of manages things behind the scenes, um, as I think is, I think, a good thing. And so I think I would like to hope that IoT ends at this point where it's sort of sitting in the background, it's not ever present in our minds, but it's doing all the things that we can spend more time with, with people and spend more time with, with other humans rather than managing technology. Well said. <laughs> In this episode of The Future Of, we're joined by Vanessa Delisle to explore the future of inclusive design. Thinking about inclusive design, about how we consider inclusivity becomes even more important for the future because we've seen both sides of technology and like how humanity rolls through 
with that technology. And so there's these amazing things and these really hard things. But that comes back to like, well, how do we how do we help the future be better, right? How do we design with more intent? And inclusive design seems to strike at the center of that that focus. Definitely. I agree with you. And it's so bizarre. You know, I think an approach that I like to have is believe that everyone is doing the best they can with information they have. I think that's a really like uh, helpful way to navigate life. Sounds empathetic. <laughs> yeah. Yes. However, even with that perspective and that mindset, we we see people behaving poorly. And so what, what I mean by this, where I'm going with this is, you know, when we talk about seeing the best of people and the worst of people, I think about Airbnb and something that they had to design through and think through. A couple of years ago, there was this movement, and I don't know if it's still prevalent. I remember hearing about it a couple of years ago. It's Airbnb while black. And the idea was that someone would request a reservation, someone, a black person would request a reservation and it would get denied. So they would have a white friend or coworker make the exact same reservation and it would get received. And so I just thought of that with the community and and the way that, you know, we can be so inclusive or divisive. And so I know that Airbnb brought people in specifically to work through this problem to say, we want to be an inclusive environment how do we make sure we we continue to design to make sure we're creating inclusive experiences? And one of the key things that they did was bring in an inclusive team. So it's not always only about the output, but it's also about the team and making sure all the voices or excluded voices are brought into the process. And not just from a observing or, you know, bring you in for a moment and, le- and, and let you go, but to be a consistent voice and kind of guiding part of the design process. That sounds like a a good practice. Having the quantitative aspect, also probably the, the qualitative aspect as you're thinking about design. If if you know if you were to talk to like a business leader on some of the return on investment of spending more time and being more intentional about inclusive design practices, what would be some things that you say to them? Yeah. Well, definitely. I know I've said it, it would take more time, but ultimately the ROI is that it's a time-saving exercise. The idea being that if you are using the inclusive design process from the very beginning, then when you ship your product and you market your product and it's out in the world, you're not needing to go back to make workarounds. Oh, we realize there's actually a, a decent market segment that we've missed and so now we're going to go back to the drawing board and go through another design iteration. Uh, so the, the idea is that you actually save time in the long run. Also, you know, I think there's something to be said about when you meet an excluded population with inclusivity and kind of show, hey, we, we hear you, we listen to you, this is actually for you, you're immediately building brand loyalty, you know, someone isn't going to feel like they're an afterthought. Someone isn't going to feel like, oh, okay, this is how they all are. This is the expectation. You build that from the beginning. The Future of Podcast is brought to you by Fresh Consulting. To find out more about how we pair design and technology together to shape the future, visit us at freshconsulting.com. Make sure to search for The Future of an Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And on behalf of our team here at Fresh, 
Thank you for listening.